Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, we have a very important discussion about mass shootings and how to understand them and what to do about them. I interview award-winning journalist Mark Fulman about his new book called Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. This is the first ever account of a groundbreaking method for successfully preventing mass shootings. To go inside the field of behavioral threat assessment, Fulman gained exclusive access to leaders of the FBI's elite behavioral analysis unit and top mental health and law enforcement experts who pioneered the method. He also immersed in confidential threat assessment programs throughout the United States, including a leading model created for K-12 public schools after Columbine. We cover many, many important things. We look at how many mass shootings have been prevented, how the mass shooting phenomenon is widely misunderstood, how the truth about media sensationalism and violent entertainment impacts this whole process. It's time to go beyond all the thoughts and prayers, misguided blame for mental illness and dug in disputes over the Second Amendment. We really have to go beyond that and Mark provides in his book a hopeful, myth-busting narrative that transcends deadlock political debate and tells the story of a promising path forward. If you want to listen to my podcast ad-free with bonus content and live Q&As, then subscribe to my Patreon account. You'll find the link and details in the show notes. And as always, this information is for educational purposes and is not medical advice. And if you need medical advice, please contact the appropriate medical professional. And now, on to today's podcast. Mark, I'm incredibly impressed at your book, Trigger Points, and I cannot wait to dive in and hear your wisdom on this really important subject that people ask me a lot about, but I'm so happy to have you here to share on the podcast your expertise and incredible research and offering solutions to what has become a very frightening situation in our country and globally, but specifically in the United States, all these mass shootings. So welcome and thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Well, Mark, you've written this book, Trigger Points, and you talk about inside the mission to stop mass shootings in America. And this definitely is something that appeals to everyone's heart is to stop mass shootings. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? People have heard your bio, but it's always nice to hear a little bit more from you and you know why you wrote this book. And thank you for writing the book. Sure. Well, really, this this project in its most fundamental sense began for me a decade ago in, in 2012. I had been focusing my work as a journalist on the issue of mass shootings. 2012 was a particularly horrific year with Sandy Hook. And with before that, there was the big movie theater shooting in Colorado. And so that had really riveted my attention on this issue. And I set out to, to collect some data on the problem and, and discovered pretty quickly that there wasn't really any good data on, on this type, this particular type of, of attack. And so I began with some colleagues at Mother Jones building a database to try to study this more. And that led to a whole variety of interesting questions about, you know, who commits this type of, of attack, these mass shootings in public, and, and how do they do it and why? What do we understand about it? What don't we understand about it? What's the role of mental health, which is very quickly used as sort of the explanation for all of this? And so that was really sort of the genesis of, of this book. It was about a year after beginning that intensive work that I started learning about the field of behavioral threat assessment, which is the focus of, of the book, this prevention method that 
combines mental health and law enforcement expertise to work together a group of people to try to intervene with people who are showing behavioral warning signs that have, have been studied by this field. It's not predictive work, but it's it's preventative work, right? Uh, trying to understand the patterns of behavior that lead to these attacks and stepping in constructively before it's too late. And I just found the, the this subject to be extremely interesting. It's very complex. It's ultimately about human behavior. And it, it also struck me as I got more and more into it as, as very promising in, in what it could potentially do additionally to help us deal with this problem as a society. We're all familiar with the intense debate around gun laws and, and the politics of the issue of, of gun violence. But this this was a whole other area that I was digging into that seemed to have a lot of promise for potential solutions. And that's just what you've done so well in this book. And you highlight, uh, it's a hopeful book because you're not just sitting and listing a bunch of problems and statistics and all the implications uh, in a a sort of post-it's-happened way. You're actually looking very, you offer solutions, you're offering frameworks, you're offering a very proactive solution-finding framework which I find very, uh, very encouraging and very fresh because people are so good at telling us all the problems. We mentioned this just before we started, that it's, it's always concerning, even like in the field of mental health that I work in, it's always just how many people have anxiety, how the, this is a pandemic and this. It's so much focus on the negative, which we do know. But if that's all the focus, how do we ever get to the solution? Because you say so well in your book, I can't remember which page it was, but it, and I'm, I'm, parif- I'm not saying exactly how you said it. I'm going to give my version of what you said. But this kind of cripples people to think, well, what can I do? It's just such a big problem. What can I as an individual do to maybe help in this situation? And so I'd love you to speak to that solution-oriented focus, and then we can dive into some more details. Yeah, I think for me, early on in focusing on on the problem of gun violence and mass shootings in particular, you know, I was very aware of the kind of bleak political debate we have about this issue. I was very immersed in it. And just, you know, I became interested in in also that kind of cultural paradigm that we impose on this this problem, right? That there's there's a very broad sense of resignation about the problem, that it's horrific, but there's nothing we can really do about it. Or we may argue endlessly about gun regulations, regardless of which side of that issue a person may be on. And I just became more and more interested in well, the question of, well, what else? I mean, it sort of goes in, in hand, hand in hand with the idea that we we define or describe these attacks as senseless, right? Senseless tragedies as if they make no sense. But they do make sense if you study them the way that this field does. And there has to be a way to make sense of any phenomenon, right? Uh, any human behavior. So I just became, I think, very keenly interested in that because it's too easy to just sort of throw up your hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do about this and it's just going to happen over and over. And I think that's a pretty widespread attitude even to this day. Very, very, very important what you said. You also mentioned in your book how we have these reactive responses and how millions and millions were spent on putting all these metal detector machines in schools and drills and even fake blood and fake shootings and, you know, a lot of very dramatic you know, very dramatic sort of responses. It's, it's kind of putting a band-aid on the wound. Obviously, these all play a role. I'm not saying we mustn't do those, and I know you'll put that into perspective. But I was interested how you pitch that as a as 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 a reactive response. And but it isn't really dealing with the issue. We've got to be more proactive. Besides, just you know that kind of level of control. 
which so often happens when we feel out of control, we try and bring in very stringent measures to get control. But they're not always the most effective ways of dealing with such a such an issue as as mass shootings. Right. Yeah, I, I found myself wondering more and more as to why we were putting so much effort into these kind of reactive measures or res- responding to active so-called active shooters as a, as a solution to this problem. If you sort of contend with the reality of of the the, the landscape of, of guns in America, that there are many, hundreds, four, nearly 400 million of them now in circulation, that in a lot of places they're loosely regulated. We can debate the, the merits of that all day long, but that is the reality of, of what's available in the country. And so then the question becomes, well, if we if we can't predict where this will happen, then what else can we do about it? And, and why wouldn't we think more about prevention rather than how we're going to respond when it does happen? And a lot of the measures taken for that, there isn't necessarily much evidence or, or proof that they, they have much value beyond sort of making us feel better at what we're doing, right? These lockdown drills that have become ubiquitous in, in schools over the past decade, it's not really clear that, you know, that, that, that that's... A solution to the problem per se, right? I mean, of course, it's important to be prepared for emergencies. We do it with fire drills and with tornadoes and earthquakes, depending where you live. But at the same time, we're pouring this enormous amount of energy into this reactive measure that also has some very serious questions, I think, as you know about, you know, what does this do to children psychologically, the kind of anxiety it might create. There have been some studies of that in years suggesting that there are negative effects from, from that. So I just found it quite baffling in some ways that we weren't doing more toward prevention, especially with tools like this that have existed for several decades now. The field of behavioral threat assessment is relatively unknown even to this day, but it's been around a long time. And there are quite a few people professionally doing this work trying to stop violence before it happens. If we want to be healthier mentally and physically, One of the best things we can possibly do is get several hours of quality sleep every night. The brain and body heal itself when we sleep. It really is one of the most amazing processes, even if you are not conscious when it happens. But I know it's hard to get good quality sleep sometimes. Your mind keeps you awake, life is stressful, and there are often a hundred anxious reasons why you can't fall asleep at night. Thankfully, there are also ways we can improve our sleep quality and overall health, including taking magnesium. Believe it or not, around 75% of people don't have enough magnesium. No wonder so many people have sleep problems. But please do not run to the store to buy the first magnesium supplement you find. Most magnesium supplements use only the two cheapest synthetic forms. And since they're not full spectrum, they won't support better sleeping habits. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium. And you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed and you'll be amazed at how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash leaf and use Dr. Leaf 10 during checkout to save 10% on your order. The link and details will be in the show notes. Incredible. Okay, so Mark, you have done a very interesting approach in this book as well, where you've taken the stories of these, of you've taken various stories and you've looked at what the FBI has done 
And you even comment on the fact that there's been hundreds of shootings that through this behavioral analysis kind of approach, preventative approach, hundreds of mass shootings have actually been prevented. So it's an effective method that seems to be evidence-based and, well, not seems, we know it's evidence-based. And it's it's almost makes me question, and I want you to dive into it, but it makes me question just up front, why don't we hear more about this? Because this sounds like, you know, this is this is good science that you're talking about here. And it's very logical when you hear it, when you lay the way you lay it out and the way you explain it, being in the field I am, this, this is absolutely, this is the right thing. And it kind of goes to what, in my limited experience, this is not my area of expertise, mass shootings, but just knowing about mental health and everything. My, every time I'm asked about it, I always say, listen, we have to be proactive. People don't just do things like that for no reason. And it doesn't, you know, you say in your book so clearly that it doesn't, this, someone doesn't just wake up one morning and decide, oh, I'm going to go and be a mass shooter and grab the closest gun. It's very, there's a lot that, a lot of planning that goes into this. And then you have to ask yourself the question, why would someone plan to do this? There's definitely a massive amount of reasoning going on and how can we prevent this? So I don't want to take away how you explain it so well, but that, that just wanted to frame the, the next part of our interview around that concept and love you to, to dive into that and explain it more. Sure. Well, it's, it's a very fascinating concept, I think, and, and I was certainly intrigued by it when I first started hearing about this work and the idea that, that hundreds of cases of attacks were being stopped. You know, what, what does that mean? It's, and it's, it's a little tricky in the sense that you're, you're really essentially talking about proving a negative outcome, right? So success in, in a threat assessment case is, is the, the absence of evidence, the absence of violence, right? The, the lack of a violent outcome. And to your question of, well, why have we never heard about this? Well, it's not news if nothing happens in a sense, right? We hear about major violent events. That's very newsworthy when you have a good outcome in a case with a troubled individual who shows signs of, of planning a violent attack. And then you have intervention that steers that person away from that and gets them into a better place and, and helps them in ways they may need help. That's the essence of this work, right? So that doesn't lend itself to the five o'clock news. But what I found in my research and, and reporting for trigger points is that this work that happens in various settings all around the country, that there are many cases like this. And, and they each one is sort of unique in its own own terms in terms of the, the person's circumstances, the behaviors that, that may be going on, how much or how little danger there might be in the in the view of threat assessment professionals who are working a case. There's there's a range, right? But the work really revolves around the, this core idea that this is a behavioral problem, that these are planned attacks. And because they're planned attacks, you have inherently a window of opportunity to intervene. And that can that can vary as well in terms of time. But the evidence from these cases shows over and over again that when you look back through what preceded an attack of this nature, that you know, there was a period of days, weeks, even months where the person was thinking about doing the attack, was planning for it, was preparing for it, was was communicating about it in a variety of ways with other people. A term in the field that refers to that is called leakage, where someone might sort of signal to a friend or a colleague that they're thinking about shooting up a school or a workplace. All of this plays into this process of, of intervention work. So there are quite a few cases like this from over the years that I learned about in my reporting for the book. And I tell the story of a number of them in the book that illustrate how this works. 
ultimately, can you say you've prevented a violent attack if one doesn't occur? I mean, it's a really interesting philosophical question at the heart of this work. But I I would push on that question quite a bit with the leaders in this field. You know, how can you articulate this to the public? How can you prove you've done this? And I heard time and time again and saw cases with evidence where there's a very compelling case that had this intervention not occurred with this person, that this person almost certainly would have committed an act of violence of this kind. Wow. I mean, that's enough for us to actually really make this available. And this is why I do this podcast is to expose these ideas to as many people as possible so that we can become much more connected as a, as a community and, and get, get those deep, meaningful connections so that we can see things and be more, react, more responsive, not reactive. Well, can you can you maybe walk us through a couple of or over either either a story or maybe an overview of a few of the stories? Because I know you work very closely with the FBI on this as well, and to help people understand what you're talking about, you know how people how you've learned in your reporting as you studied this and researched this these stories because they're fascinating. Sure. So just to give a little more context, this is a very broad based and decentralized field. There are people doing this work at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level, as you mentioned, the, the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit has a, a specialized team that, that does this work and has done a lot of research in, in the past decade and a half on this issue. That's relatively new. The, the work was developed more than 30 years ago. It, it really sort of begins in the 1980s with some work at the U.S. Secret Service that was focused on preventing assassination. And th- this was sort of the genesis of the field combining mental health professionals, a forensic psychologist by the name of Robert Fine, who started working with a Secret Service agent named Brian Voskule. They're sort of an early example of this collaborative work. I'm starting to study in, in, in that context, they're talking about how do we stop people who are trying to assassinate the president? What behaviors could we learn about that might help us intervene before it's too late and realizing that, you know, there's no predictive profile for that, that this is a behavioral and circumstantial research pursuit. So, you know, fast forward over the years, you've got this kind of fanning out into a wider context where this was developed further for use in workplace settings as workplace violence grew in the 80s and 90s. And then there was a big effort to develop the research towards school shootings after Columbine in 1999. At that point, the FBI and the Secret Service were both working on it. There was some partnership with the Department of Education. And out of that came some programs that kind of pioneered this in a school setting. And so what that takes me to is some of the casework that I studied the most in depth of the book takes place in Oregon in a, in a school district called the Salem, Salem Kaiser School District. That's a K through 12 public school system, the second largest in the state of Oregon, that developed an early version of this program after Columbine and built a model essentially for how to do behavioral threat assessment work in a school setting to intervene with kids who are troubled, who are causing concern. And in many cases, that's not necessarily about someone who's thinking about committing a school shooting. There are other behavioral problems that are much more sort of garden variety in a school setting, bullying and kids who have suicide risk or depression, other issues going on. And it was really developed as a a way to kind of put a safety net around all of these issues. And within that also stop the, the, the small handful of potentially more serious threat cases. So there were some cases along those lines that I was able to observe uh, over a period of many months, sitting in with the team there, watching how they 
discuss cases as they're developing, student behaving in ways that was causing alarm. Uh, there was a case I write about from 2019 where a junior in one of the high schools in the district was talking about bringing a gun to school and shooting the school up. And some other kids overheard this and were worried and reported it. And that's a crucial first step in many threat assessment cases where you have this kind of see something, say something phenomenon where an ordinary member of the public, a student, a teacher, a family member, a friend, will raise a concern. And when a qualified threat assessment team looks at that, they're going to start gathering information all around that person to try to understand what the issue is. In the case of this student, it was, you know, looking at, has this kid made threats before? Does he have access to a gun? He had talked about bringing his father's gun to school. There was a student resource officer, a, a police officer on the team who went out to speak with the student and his mother at his home to, to assess that, right? The concern about that he would bring a gun into the school and was able to learn that he didn't have access to one. So that's sort of how this, this an example of how this work proceeds when an issue is raised with a team and there's concern that this could be a real threat to someone who may carry out a school shooting. This was a kid who had some depression problems and just needed some help. And, and often that was that that is the solution, especially in a school setting, is to provide more kind of support, whether it's counseling services, educational opportunity, sometimes extracurricular activity, these what they call pro-social or constructive interventions, right? To steer a troubled youth away from thinking about violence and to engage more in ways that they need. I mean, in this case, it was quite successful. They were able to move this kid away from thinking about carrying out an attack over a period of months. That's amazing. So that's actually a system that's been put in place. So it's a proper framework that has, has and a mindset that shift that's occurred amongst the whole school district that teachers, I assume, go through training and or whatever. I don't know what it looks like. If you could maybe tell us a little more about what that actually looks like, because obviously it's now a philosophy that's going through that school district. So instead of just getting caught up in the day-to-day activities and the busyness of the school life, they're actually now watching and noticing, and there's an awareness that's being created. So could you talk more to a little bit more to what that actually looks like? Yeah, that's right. And one of the, one of the key questions that comes up about this field is, well, how do you build this? What is this? Yeah, like? yeah. That would be my next question. Um, and and. And it goes to your point about the, the way that this is existing in that particular school district. And there are others that do it too. There are many universities that now do this. And it's primarily or largely staffed with existing resources. So you have you have resources within a school system already with counselors, with school psychologists, with administrators, in some settings with school resource officers, police who are assigned to the school. And it's really about the model is essentially pulling that team of people together to meet and discuss cases as they come up. And there's also a system or a model created for doing that, that in the case of Salem Kaiser in Oregon, one of the early creators of a model a set of it's really essentially a set of questions that the experts in the room are asking about any given situation about the you know behavioral and circumstantial issues with a particular individual who is causing concern answering that set of questions as as a or using a set of protocols to guide their assessment of is this person dangerous or not if so how are they and what can we do to manage it so it's really a process of of discussion and meeting and analysis done by this group of people in the school system, in this particular example, 
who have expertise they bring and, you know, school psychologists and counselors who are offering that mental health expertise. They're also coordinating with some local agencies in, in the in the setting of Salem-Kaiser. They're working with county mental health professionals. They're working with juvenile justice and youth programming people, various stakeholders in the community who can help kind of triage a worrisome situation with resources or with perspective, or in some cases, both, right? So, you know, this is largely built into the community already. There are some professionals who will lead this effort in a specific role. In the Salem-Kaiser example, it's uh, the lead school psychologist who's running the team. There's a director of safety and risk management in the school system that is helping run this program. But beyond that, as you said earlier, they're training the basics of this across the school administration and staff, counselors, teachers, principals in different buildings, so that they all know the basics of how this works and how to share information with each other in a concerning situation and how to move through the set of protocols to deal with concerns that come up in the school. So it is it is a cultural shift for any community or institution to have this but I think ideally, as, as it's expressed by leaders in the field, you have a lot of these resources already built into your system. It's a matter of training people on how to do this work and creating that infrastructure. Yeah, as you're speaking and you explain things so well, it makes me very hopeful because it makes you realize that, you know, it's not that difficult. It's not like we have to stop the world and think, okay, this will happen in, you know, 2030. We can actually start immediately just by these kind of discussions and you know, a couple of phone calls and you've got the, you've got the people, you've got the teams. And as soon as awareness is raised, we all have the same objective in mind. It's easy to, to downstream a training through Zoom and, and, you know, to have a, it's very easy to have a centric now with the way that we're moving. Once you've got the, you, you can basically downstream this very quickly through technology, through the teams that are already in existence. So this is not something that's impossible. It could take a few hours and a few weeks, but you could have things set in place. If I'm understanding you correctly and just thinking of the logic of, things that work that I've done in different areas and schools and things. It doesn't take, it's when we see things as being these massive problems that take hours and tons of resources, it kind of immobilizes people. But what I'm hearing you say is that we don't have to feel immobilized. You know, a couple of phone calls, a couple of understand trainings and teachings and so on. We can actually get these systems going in multiple schools, not just one district in Oregon or one university. As you say, they are in a few places, but we could expand this nationally quite quickly if it's just coordinated or have I missed something? No, I think that's right. It's, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that the work is easy. It's, it's, I think it's quite complex in some ways, but it's a very complex problem. It's a difficult problem. Sorry, let me correct the word easy. I mean, to, I, to, I should rather say it's not an impossible thing to do. It's something sure. that's doable. It's complex, yeah, and, but doable. And, and I, I didn't mean that as, as, as pushback to what you said. Absolutely, what, I understand. What I was picking up on was the sense that, you know, as you say, I think this is an existing framework that people can use that has a lot of promise to it, that, that is codified, that has structure. There are a lot of people who know about this work, and yet it's virtually unknown in a lot of places. So that raises an interesting question, I think, against the theme that we were talking about at the opening of the show, which is this kind of widespread attitude that there's really nothing we can do to stop this problem that is just going to keep happening over and over again. Well, the counterpoint to that is we have this behavioral prevention approach that exists that is documented through decades worth of research literature that has evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's evidence-based. So, you know, there are different examples of how it's done. And and that is, I think, one of the interesting challenges for the 
field of behavioral threat assessment is that they don't have a standardized or nationalized codified way of doing this. But the concepts everywhere I looked at it are, are very similar. And the approach tends to be very similar. It doesn't lend itself to sound bites. It's, it's bringing together different expertise. But in a certain sense, it's very simple. It's asking, what is worrying us about this situation? You know, what specifically are we seeing based on our expertise in mental health, law enforcement, education, human resources? Collectively, it's what the, the, the field calls structured professional judgment, bringing together leaders in different areas and saying, let's analyze the situation, let's talk about it, and let's come up with a plan to manage it. So in that sense, it is a very simple approach. Within that, I think you have quite complicated cases. And some of the cases that I looked at were more complicated than others. There's some that would resolve very quickly. Others go on for years. So in that sense, it's not an easy solution. You're talking about managing a person who is problematic over a long period of time. But I think fundamentally, that is better than just ignoring an approach like that and and just hoping it will go away or arguing about, you know, can we get rid of all the guns in the country or not, or arm everybody in case somebody comes in, you know, solutions that have no evidence or possibility of, of working, right? So from that perspective, this is a very, I think, approachable and, and usable paradigm. So well said, excellent. And that's so true. You can't, you know, there's so much time and money wasted on the fight over guns, and those are very relevant issues that need to still be discussed. And I, and I know you have a viewpoint yes. on that as well. But we can, in the meantime, we can't wait to solve those. There's always big questions going on in life. And then there's, hey, we've got kids in schools that are you know, potentially going to shoot someone and others that are going to be hurt. So here we can take evidence, 30 years of evidence-based frameworks and start working out ways of rolling it out. And not to be frightened by the fact that there's no codified centralized system I think sometimes that can hold us back too, because I think in the process of doing that, we can spend years trying to codify a system and get one system in place. Meanwhile, this, you mentioned something key that really caught my attention. There are similarities across these different approaches. So we can bring in a broad frame vehicle. We can then put this each unique situation into that, which goes with all the resilience research, which shows that you can build resilience for one situation. And that just basically increases your resilience, but it doesn't really, it doesn't mean that you have all the tools in your toolbox for the next struggle that hits you in life. But it means that you have some similarity. There's a system, there's a way of thinking that's in place to be able to help you to manage that situation. So it's just, I know it's kind of philosophical, but I mean, I think we can do more than what we're doing and not spend so much time fighting about guns. Exactly. I think, you know, as you say, I think that's a very important societal debate that goes on. And and there's been a lot of change with that over recent years. Um, but I really came to see this subject as an additive solution and an additive idea that we can continue this work in trying to, you know, create better regulatory structure for firearms. We see that as essential. And, and the majority of the country does, if you look at opinion polling over three decades, the last three decades, but that's not all we can do. And, and so I think this uh, potentially adds a very powerful additional solution to the problem. Another thing I tried to do with the book is to really, as I was learning about it, write about some of the myths that surround this mm, problem. Uh, yeah, thank you. I wanted to transition to that. So let's dive yeah, in. I mean, yeah, a lot of I, myths. 
I think that's really important too for people to understand better. How do we solve this problem? Well, we need to understand it better, first of all. And of course, one of the biggest ones is revolves around mental illness, right? I mean, every single time there's a mass shooting in the United States, the media stories and the the way that people, public officials speak about it, uh, you always hear this theme about perpetrators snapping, right? What made the guy snap as if they just went off the handle all of a sudden? But as we talked about earlier, that's not what happens. These are planned attacks that are planned and thought out over time. It's not an impulsive act. This is this is a, a predatory form of violence, right? And that also speaks directly to this concept of insanity. You know, we have this sort of popular myth that everyone who does this is insane. Well, on its face, it's it's hard to relate to the idea that someone could go into a public place and kill a bunch of people and then kill themselves in a lot of cases. In many of these cases, these are not people who are acting irrationally in the sense that they have a very clear idea themselves of what they're doing and why. A sense of of validation through an act of violence, a sense of justification, seeking justice or revenge or or just escape from, from pain and suffering. That occurs in a lot of these cases, especially in the school shooting scenarios where you have despairing youth who decide that that violence is their way out of their despair and pain. So it's not that they're insane. I mean, no one would look at a mass shooter and say that person's mentally healthy, but they're not also, they're not, I think, you know, contrary to popular misconception, these are not people who are hearing voices. There are very few cases like that where, where people are being driven by hallucinations to kill. But I think that the, a large majority of the public believes that's what's going on because we talk about people snapping and and being and saying mental illness pulled the trigger and these kinds of things you hear in the political and media arena that just aren't true when you look at the forensics of these cases. We all know that experiencing joy and happiness can be great for our mental health. One way I love to have fun, relax and tap into what I call my happiness zone is by playing games. Indeed, taking part in a little playful competition makes me smile, which is why I love playing Best Fiends. Best Fiends, that's friends without the R, always satisfies my need for one more me time and more fun. It is a mobile puzzle game that is free to download and super engaging. The game features tons of cute characters that can help you solve thousands of fun puzzles. The more you play, the more characters you collect, and the more you win, the more challenges you face. Plus, once you've downloaded Best Fiends, you can play anywhere, even without an internet connection which is great if you're stuck without Wi-Fi. I'm currently on level 650 called the Blue Cove, where I'm getting closer to saving the land of Minutia from all those bad slugs. And with thousands of levels, you can have so much fun and not get bored. And I love playing these games because they can trigger a double dose of dopamine in the brain, which is otherwise known as the brain's favorite feel-good juice. And they're a great way to build the brain through learning, which increases our mental resilience. Download Best Fiends for free from the App Store or Google Play. Plus, earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. The link and details will be in the show notes. That's such an excellent point because everyone battles with mental health issues. It's a human problem. And sometimes our problems can accumulate and go from an issue to an actual mental problem. doesn't mean you've got a brain disease and now you're this violent person who's you know, going to kill people. There is a whole environmental, as you already said, so many complex factors around how that person got to that point and how they're thinking that this could be the solution to the to the the, the mental state that they're in. So there's a there's a mental health component in that we don't humans don't really like to kill each other. So when someone does murder someone else, there's definitely some wrong thinking going on there. 
But as yeah. you say, that violence, the stigmatizing around, oh gosh, if someone's got the label, they're potentially dangerous and they looked at more than someone else. Meanwhile, the person, how many, you say in your book as well, how many people, how many times have the interviews, I mean, people interview other people, they say, I had no idea that this was going on in their head. So the people that know the shooters didn't, didn't suspect a thing, which is also very interesting. So I don't want to jump ahead of the myths there, but yeah, they, I'm glad you brought up the mental health thing because there's definitely an association that people with extreme mental health challenges are just automatically violent and that are dangerous, which is not, re- is not the case. Right. There's, there's, a, there's a mental history, there's a, there's a mind history, so we shouldn't even move away from the word mental illness, mental health. We've got a, a troubled person, and that troubled person is definitely trying to manage their troubled life in a, in a not a very, very healthy way at all and need to be, and that's where the whole intervention and threat assessment intervention comes in. Right. I think maybe the, the phrase or term behavioral health is, is more apt here because this is really fundamentally what the, the practitioners in this field are looking at. What are the behaviors and the circumstances leading up to these attacks? And what are the behaviors and circumstances of the person who we're concerned about? Now, that may very well include mental health problems. It often includes depression or suicidality, right? So there are many cases of mass shootings where the perpetrator commits suicide. So that's an important indicator. And that is, of course, a serious mental health issue. But that isn't necessarily causal in in many of these cases. And looking for the why, the answer to why, you know, the public always wants to know why would someone do this? I remember, you know, that really sort of set me off on this journey a decade ago when when the movie theater massacre happened in Colorado. I just, you know, I had covered gun violence and, and mass shootings some already at that point. But that just that one really hit me in a way that was I found it very shocking. How, how and why would someone do this? Right. At the time, it was unprecedented. I mean, it's a little bit hard to remember that now, given the scope of this problem since. But for someone to walk into a movie theater and, and kill 12 people, shoots almost 70 people is just, you know, I found that mind blowing. And, and so to me, the question became, well, and I think the question fundamentally for this field is what is the process that leads to that? It's almost the question of how is almost more important than why, because sometimes we can't answer why. Sometimes it's inexplicable, right? So, but if you can answer the question how, what are what are the patterns that lead up to this behaviorally, circumstantially? And it, and it can involve mental health and does involve mental health problems for sure. There's a wide range of that though. And we also know from the research literature going way back on mental illness that mental illness is, is not a cause of violence. That it's not a useful predictor of violence. The vast majority of people who have mental illness, clinically speaking, are not violent, right? And in fact, are, are more likely to be victims of violence than, than perpetrators. So thinking of mental illness pulling the trigger is not a helpful way to think about this problem. It's very counterproductive. Thank you for bringing that up. That's incredible. Well, we unfortunately only have time for one more myth, but can you, can you pick out another or two, two fairly quickly that you think would be really important for people to just understand? Then they can obviously get your book and, and learn more. The other, another big one is, is the idea that we can predict these attacks, that there's a predictive profile based on characteristics or demographics, right? And that doesn't exist. People in criminology and in threat assessment and related fields have, have looked for many, many years to try to figure out what type of person will commit a mass shooting. And that just simply doesn't exist. And that, that's why we need a preventive 
approach to this uh, in the view of the field, right? That we can we can do prevention through behavioral pattern analysis and and by learning ways to intervene effectively. But we can never say, you know, a, a white male who's in their 20s who is suffering from depression is the next mass shooter because there are just far too many people who fit that feeling, right? And, and people assume a certain type of person is a mass shooter, but many, many other mass shooters come from different backgrounds and have different experiences. And uh, that's borne out in the data too. So the notion of a predictive profile, it just, it's just doesn't exist. And it's important for people to understand that as well. Thinking about, you know, how do we deal with this problem? Because there's no way to see it coming in that, in that sense, we have to see it in different ways. That's so good. Time for one more. You're just saying such good stuff. I'd like to hear one more. What other myths are there around mass shooters? I mean, I think I would just, I would add to that a little bit with the profiling that when you try to describe who's going to go do this based on characteristics, there's another pitfall to that, which threat assessment leaders will talk about, which is that you, if, if a person doesn't fit those descriptions, then you may be missing the people who are planning violence because they don't fit the, the descriptions, right? So another thing that happens is, you know, there are a lot of cases in more recent years where we have this issue of what's known as the copycat problem, where you have, especially again, among youth perpetrators identifying with Columbine, with the Columbine shooters, since then with other mass shooters at Parkland and elsewhere, people who might be causing worry who are talking about those cases but if you were to say, well, hey, this, you know, this kid who's making me feel anxious because they're talking about the Parkland shooting every day, but wait a minute, they're not white and they're not, they, they don't have any history of mental health problems. So they can't be a school shooter, like, because they don't fit the, the profile. Well, that person may very well be on a dangerous path because of other things that they're doing that a practitioner would look at and know to recognize the warning behavior. So therein lies the the, the danger of, of predictive profiling or character profiling, right? That it, it's not only not useful in terms of a broad-based population, but it also could send you down the wrong path or cause you to look away from someone who you need to be looking at. Wow. Yeah. It takes away the uniqueness of each person and the fact that the complex, the complex nature, because you're just trying to categorize. So you, as soon as we categorize, we miss uniqueness. And so That's it's right. much better to have that complex behavioral analysis. Wow, this is incredible. That's right. and, and to that point, every case in the field is, is unique, is con- treated as and considered as unique by practitioners. Now, of course, they have a knowledge base for recognizing behavioral patterns and warning signs, but every case circumstantially is different. And that's really important too. If a person who is causing concern comes to the attention of threat assess- a threat assessment team, they're going to look at the circumstances very specifically of that person to try to figure out, A, what's the level of danger? B, what do we do about it? And there's no way to sort of define that in a general sense, right? Because people are so complicated and have such complicated circumstances. Exactly. It goes to looking at everyone's individual unique story because that person's stories is manifesting in behaviors that are like literally warning signals of crying out for help. And they may not see them in their conscious mind, the potential perpetrator, but it's in the non-conscious mind. They drive, they're crying out for help. So this is a beautiful way of actually looking at that whole complex narrative of the individual. And we've, in recent years, we've become so focused on boxing and categorizing and labeling and diagnosing that we miss the story of the person. And right. I'm hearing you say, let's look at the, that's complex. It takes time, but that is a much more more realistic and accurate way of 
helping to be take a preventative approach. Yeah, and what I what I really tried to accomplish with the book was to explain the work of this field through storytelling, to tell the stories of individuals who are subjects, who are, are, are the uh, potential problem, and then also the stories of the practitioners, the people doing this work, really interesting range of professionals uh, in, in mental health and in law enforcement and education, who, when you see those more individual human stories around this issue of mass violence, I think that in a way is the best way to explain it. That's what I found, right? Because you can talk about statistics and academic research and, and criminal criminologist statistics and all those things until you turn blue in the face. But if you don't understand it in the context of people and the way people behave, I think you don't understand it as well. So for me, a real excitement of doing this book too was, was just really trying to understand this problem and then explain it through storytelling. It's, through it's brilliant art. how you've done that. And it does because you do bring in the research, but you bring it in a way that's very digestible. So the book is this, and where can people get hold of the book and find out more about the work you do? So where, where can they find out more about the book and the work that you do? Oh, yeah, thanks. So yeah, the book is available, all of your favorite booksellers. It's from Day Street, HarperCollins. It's called Trigger Points, and it comes out on April 5th. So yeah, please, please purchase a copy and read it. I think people will find it quite illuminating in terms of this issue that for so long, we're sort of stuck in the same debates and discussions about. And for me, that was a real joy of the book too, was, was just sort of figuring out there's, there's a whole other way to think about this problem and, and that's solution focused. I love that. And that brings us full circle back to the beginning. Let's be solution focused. And you do a superb job in Trigger Point in doing that and helping us to, to address an incredibly challenging situation and you bring hope to the situation as well so thank you for your great work and for spending time with me today and all my listeners and viewers to illuminate us and give us more hope thank you for having me i'm happy to be here with you today thank you i hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful if you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.